and he's teaching me how to speak South African, right? Yes. Well, the atmosphere was electric. The gymnasium was packed. The drama of sport was getting ready to be played out. The scoreboard, it said 52 to 52. Visitors, home team. Twelve seconds were on the clock. The coach brought his team together, gathered in a huddle. They had the ball, the home team, the Rams. And as he normally did as a good coach, he drew up a play that was going to execute the game-winning shot. But he had always said, hey, if something happens such that there's a better play that comes about, take it. Move away from the plan. Take the better opportunity. And so back out on the court, those players went. The ball was inbounded to the point guard. And for you that don't know basketball well, the point guard is the person that handles the ball and sets the team in motion, runs the play. And so the point guard got out to the top of the circle in front of the basket and looked, and all of that team and the opponents were to one side. How that happened, he didn't know, but he heard the words of the coach in his head, take the better opportunity. And so he began to dribble and said, oh, it's just a layup. And I can read the headlines now, he thought. Toby wins game for Rams in the morning newspaper. And sure enough, he took off and went for that layup and up and in. It didn't happen that way. That point guard, Toby, saw their tallest center move across that lane and in that moment started to pick the ball up but got it caught on his leg a little bit and took an extra half step. And there's this man with stripes on and a whistle that's out on that court. He blew that whistle. He raised his hand and he went like this. And that, for those of you that know the game of basketball, that means traveling. You took more steps than you're allowed. The other team gets the ball. So now there's four seconds on the clock. The other team has the ball, but they've got to go the entire length of the court to break the tie. Or it'll go into overtime. Well, they didn't even need to go the entire length of the court because one man took the ball and took about four dribbles, and from half court, let it fly, and right through the hoop at the buzzer. And that guy named Toby, me, I was the goat. And that doesn't stand for greatest of all time. That's the person who deserves the blame. I'd lost the game. I'd let down my team and the packed home crowd. In the final game of our year, against a crosstown rival. Well, for me, I didn't want to go out with my teammates and my friends that night after the game. I decided I'm just going to get in the car with my parents and head on home. And so I did. I went out to their car knowing where they had parked and got into the back seat, my mom in the passenger side. 
and my dad in the driver's side. And the silence was awkward. Before I tell you the rest of that story, let me go to the main stories of our morning today in the Scripture. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, and we're going to continue to build upon what Pastor Kevin spoke on last week, this idea, this theme of him making our paths straight. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40 initially. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what's the context here? What's the setting? Let's back up for a moment. The setting is Jesus teaching amidst Jewish authorities who were around him a lot of the time, and they were always testing and trying to trap him because he was a threat to their religious system, what they had established. They were the leaders. And we have an instance right here. If we backed up a little bit, we would see that these people called the Sadducees, which was one of the main sects of Judaism, they had already tried to trap him in how he interpreted a a marriage and heaven issue. And he had handled that. Now the Pharisees, one of their teachers, a lawyer, one very versed in the law, he comes and he wants to try to trap him. So he asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus had 613 to choose from because that's how many laws had been built into the system of Judaism. You had the Ten Commandments, and then they built a bunch of them around those. And what's he do? He answers the guy's question. And yet he does a little more. He gives him an answer that it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he adds to it. He adds love your neighbor as yourself. And Jewish people, those asking, those that would have been in the crowd listening, they knew the front part of that. They, in their tradition, even from the littlest young boy and daughter, would learn to memorize and recite what they called the Shema. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they would repeat that morning and evening. It would be the first thing they would memorize. So nothing really new in his answer. It probably was what that expert in the law thought he was going to answer. But he adds a truth from a different book, not in the Shema, not a normal set of their commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus here is doing something that's more radical than we even understand, having probably been familiar with this at some point. 
He's taking an established Jewish system and law and tweaking it, changing it, adding something to it. And what he's basically saying, and you'll see the quote behind me, he's saying you can love people and not love God, but you cannot love God and not love people. He's putting them together. He's raising the challenge to go beyond just this sense that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but that you love your neighbor, people, that it's just like it. It's connected with it. And so we have here Jesus answering the what. He's saying this is the primary. This is what everything hangs upon. But what I want to look at in more detail today is the how. How do you do this? How do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself? And so we're going to flip ahead a few pages in the book of Matthew and see how Jesus does it, because he's the perfect example of both the what and the how. So in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, we're going to read. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. So the setting again here is that he just had this ceremonial Jewish festival dinner called the Passover. And they had walked from that place in a home over to this this garden, this olive grove called Gethsemane. And he knows and he's been telling them that my last days are at hand. I'm going to finish my mission, and it's not how you guys thought it was going to finish. My life is going to be taken. And he goes to this familiar place where they often went, this Gethsemane, and he is distressed. He is depressed. He is worked up. This is a great illustration of seeing this combination of Jesus, God, Jesus, man, at the same time. For he's encountering a situation where there's confusion, there's mystery, there's difficulty, there's trial. It's a situation where you don't get to use faith in a favored circumstance. This is a test of faith. The preferred circumstances and conditions aren't the reality. Just last week I was at a conference and one man put it like this. He said, the hardest time to have faith is when you have to have it. And that's what's going on with Jesus here. We can identify with him in his humanity. And yet he's seeking to love and honor God. His father admits this emotional angst, this distress, this agony, this anguish. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus in this moment, he sweat like drops of blood. And they've even proven, the physicians, that that can actually happen, that your capillaries can get so 
filled up that you will actually drip blood in an extreme stress situation. And it tells us here that he fell on his face. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus ever falls on his face to pray. He's a hurting man. He does not like the prospect of what he knows is coming. Yeah, physical death, that's going to be very difficult. The torture will be severe. What's more is that the scripture tells us he is going to have put upon him the entire sin of the world. Past, present, and future. All of it. And in a mysterious moment of when that happens, the wrath of God, the severe judgment of God, the favor of God is all going to change. All the wrath and judgment's coming on him. All the favor is going to be not there. And that, all of that put together has him in deep anguish. And I think for us it's an illustration of how loving God, truly loving God, needs to be both real and dependent. Jesus is loving his Father God here because he's being very real, bold to ask. We'll see that in a moment. Very dependent. God loves, just like fathers that are here today. Whether you've got a 4-year-old or a 44-year-old, you still probably love it when that son or daughter says, Dad, Daddy, comma, and then something else. A comment, a request, because there's a connection. There's a uniqueness in that relationship, an intimacy that only you and that son and daughter have. How about for you? When's the last time you loved God in such a way that you were very real? You were very dependent. Too often I think we can get into a relationship with God that say prayers at meals, come to church on Sunday, toss in a little Bible reading here and there, be kind to people, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But there's so much more. And he loves it when you and I depend on him in all things. Let's go on in the passage here and we'll learn more about how he loves his father. He continues in verse 39. His prayer is, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So... You men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays us, who betrays me, is at hand. So how does he love the Father? Well, first of all, just in the way he speaks to him. My Father, that intimacy we talked about, that personal relationship. 
God is loving that his son in that moment is embracing his unique position as the beloved son. And so his love is demonstrated here in a way where he's basically saying, I know who I am. And I know who you are, God. And God takes honor from that, love from that, the clarity of understanding of who God is, the omniscient, wise, and powerful being. He goes on to say, if possible, if possible, let this cup, this cup of wrath and judgment pass from me. And in this moment, he's understanding that in his humanity, he's void of all the all-knowing nature of the unique combination of father and son in his humanity. But he tells God, he tells God and loves him in this way by saying, I know who you are. You are the one who knows all things. I know you know if there is a possibility to achieve this mission in a different way than what is being lined up. I don't think at all that Jesus was trying to get out of his mission. But he was boldly asking to accomplish that mission in a different kind of way. And he was willing to ask his father for that consideration. You see, we can be bold with God. We can ask with great boldness. And yet, as we ask boldly, we need to surrender completely, which is what he does here. His next statement says, after saying, let this cup pass, his request, his appeal to what God's always been able to do before, deliver, protect, provide for his people. He appeals to that. Loving God in his remembrance of his ability to deliver, he says, and yet your will be done. And that's the final statement of his love in this interaction. He not only says, I know who I am, God, and you love it when I know it. I not only know who you are, God, and you love it when I know who you are accurately. And I not only know what you've done and I can recount your deliverance and provision in my life and in your chosen people and everybody that follows you, I also know that you love it and I love you best when I obey. Obedience. I will follow through on your will, Lord. Your will be done. That is how you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Gospel of John adds to this. There's a passage that says, Jesus speaking to the same type of crowd. My food, the very nutrition that's necessary, my sustaining resource is to do the will of him who sent me. Later in the book of 1 John, John records this. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Test question. Make sure you're following along here. How many times does Jesus ask God his Father for this cup to pass? Three, yeah, three times. And part of you could say, wait a minute, what's going on here? He's Jesus. Shouldn't he just ask once? Maximum. But no, this humanity again, being played out three times, asking. And we've got to be honest to the passage, even though it's not recorded here, the Father says no. Three times.
Jesus wants God's will, even though he can boldly ask for a different way. And so obedience is really defined here for us. Obedience is trust plus surrender. Trust plus surrender. I love this statement. Um, I came across it years ago. It's not in Scripture, but it's almost as if it could be. It goes like this. It's on the screen behind me. God doesn't always give us what we want. He gives us what we would want if we knew what he knows. Now, that's actually pretty deep. I didn't say it, so I'm not calling myself deep. But listen to it again. God does not always give us what we want. He gives us what we would want if we knew what he knows. That's trust. That's real belief. That's real faith. It's what Kevin talked about last week. Faith is looking forward to the hindsight. Trusting God when you don't like what you see ahead. And when you even sense his no in terms of changing it. But we must go on. There he gives us a picture of how he loves God his Father. But let's look at that second part where he says we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll read on here in verse 47 of chapter 26. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So God, in his word, and Jesus here in actual life experience, shows us what a friend is. The first friend is actually a betrayer. You talk about blowing categories. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Those those two terms don't don't they don't go together. Well, yeah, they do. For Jesus, and this whole idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, a neighbor is actually a betrayer. It backs up the teaching that he has spoken to them and to the masses that we are to love our enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Love your enemies. You see, there's a mingled mission going on here. There's a big one. God's big mission is being accomplished. Jesus is fulfilling the very mission that a sinful world demands. But there's also Judas's mission, the mission to get a payoff for deceiving him and taking him to the authorities. And yet Jesus loves him right in the midst of him. How does he do that? Well, I think number one, where does Jesus go? He goes to this common place, this place where he knows he can be found, Gethsemane. That's where they would go when they would go on mini retreat and hang out. So he didn't try to duck or hide what he knew was coming. He went right where Judas knew he could find him and bring the mob. What else does he do? He allows Judas in this betrayal to kiss him. One of the most 
even amongst men, intimate marks of covenant, connection, honor. He lets it happen. And what's he calling? Friend. He actually welcomes him into this strange mixture of mingled missions and calls him friend as he's doing the thing that he is responsible for, Judas, and yet is in God's plan. I'll never forget a few years ago, I was here on Mason Montgomery Road and I was getting lunch at Whole Foods. Now, don't get this wrong. I I get to say a nice healthy place I was eating on this day. I don't always eat at Whole Foods, but I was there this day and uh, having lunch and there were a couple gals that were seated on this long bench facing out through the glass beside me and I was picking up on their conversation And they were somewhat loudly, really, with some enthusiasm, expressing an experience they had just had that morning. And the one guy was saying, can you believe that? I never expected that to happen. And there you go, yeah, I know. Uh, It kind of changed up the mood and the sense of our purpose, didn't it? And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? This is an interesting engagement. Well, they went on. And I found out... uh, hear the fact that that morning they had gone to protest one of the establishments here in our community, really a national establishment called Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A's top CEO had articulated recently, and media had reported it, a view on same-sex relationships that crossed with a lot of where our culture is at, And they had decided across the country that there were those that were going to protest that view and push against Chick-fil-A. And so they had gone to be a part of that, to protest. But the neat thing both to me and to them, because they were expressing it, was that when they went there, they found love for them, even as the protesters. Because Chick-fil-A had carried out over hours of their presence there, free chicken sandwiches and free drinks. A great demonstration of this very point. Loving the betrayer, loving the enemy right in the midst, even if you have different viewpoints. Wow, that was music to my ears as somebody just listening in to a conversation. What else does Jesus teach us here about loving our neighbor? I think he defines a second neighbor here. It's the bystander. Read with me in verse 51. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we learn from John's account, the gospel writer, of this same story that this guy's name was Malchus. And you can probably guess, if you've hung out in the Bible much at all, of who the disciple was that pulled the sword. It was Peter. And so right there in the midst of this anguish, intense situation, and i got to be honest with you, I'm thinking this is one of those times where Jesus, if he ever can take a a break from having a healing ministry, this is it. Because he's got a lot going on, a lot to be thinking about, a lot to work through. And that guy's ear doesn't seem that significant in the big picture to me. Plus, he's also part of the mob. But what does Jesus do? 
he takes a bystander and he loves him by healing his ear. Right there on the spot. I wish more chapters were written. I would have liked to know what that guy had to say after that event. He loves the bystander. Thus the title, Blood, Sweat, and Ears. You see, this is his last miraculous healing before his death. The very last one he would do in a time where there was every reason to be much more oriented toward himself and less aware of others. And then our last neighbor that we see in this text, read with me verses 52 to 54. It says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? So he's been a neighbor to the betrayer. He's been a neighbor to the bystander. And now he's a neighbor to his best friend. Peter's one of his best friends. Been hanging with him for three years. And he loves Peter in a few different ways. One, by healing the ear, he protects Peter from a criminal investigation that could come days later and change up the whole type of Messiah and followers that he was trying to create. They weren't a material, physical, military revolution. That's not what he was, even though so many thought that that's what he needed to be. But he also loves Peter by confronting him. No, Peter, it's not the thing to do. In fact, if you'd been praying and alert back in the garden, this is part of what was meant to equip you to get ready for this moment. And why is it for us so often that we don't embrace this part of love? This part of love that is willing to rebuke, confront, and correct the people closest to us. He had done it with Peter just a few chapters back. You'll remember the instance when Peter basically says to him, when Jesus is trying to articulate that he's going to this mission that will end in his death, and Peter says, no way, it'll never happen. You're not going to your death. And what does Jesus say to him then? Peter, you're speaking the words of Satan. You're getting in my way. You're you're tempting me with a favorable circumstance that all my humanity would like, but it's not the mission. He confronted him back then. And so for us, this is a message for us today. We, We have to include in our love for neighbor a category for loving those closest to us, to be willing at times to confront them when their behavior or their way of thinking is not in line with what God would have. And so by application, I think there's three key points along the lines of this betrayer, bystander, and best friend for us. Think about it. When's the last time you've loved an enemy? When's the last time you've gotten past a grudge or a personal hurt to still extend dignity 
and kindness to someone else. How about the bystander? When's the last time you were at work, at the grocery, at a ball game, at a family gathering, and you intentionally tuned in and went out of your way to attend to someone else's need or desire? And how about those closest to you, a best friend, a family member, a workmate? Can you, will you decide to get past your overcommitment to being liked and not making waves in order to love a good friend by humbly pointing out a concern about their perspective or their pattern of behavior? That's loving conversation. And it's part of this whole equation Jesus puts together about loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, there I am in the back seat of that circa 1980 Chevy Impala. It's an awkward silence. And I can't take it anymore, and so I decide I'm going to break it. And so I say something to the effect of, that game really stunk. And almost immediately, my mom in the passenger seat turned around and said, Yeah, what the were you thinking? Now, my mom did love me, but she was a fiery Italian woman, competitive, and she hated that loss and that blunder by me as much as I did. But in that moment, it's a good Father's Day memory for me because my dad, my dad generally was a pretty passive man. Now, there's some good points to passivity, but there was a lot of points where I regretted and felt like there was something missing because of how passive he was. But in this moment, he stepped in. And I'll never forget, he waved his hand across the passenger seat there, didn't touch my mom, but kind of gave the clue back off. And he even said to her, that's enough of that. And then he turned to me and he looked me right in the eye. And he said, son, that really was a hard ending to that game. However, if you look at the whole game, you played a pretty good game. And there'll be more games. And you'll have opportunity to learn from this, grow from this, and perform in a way that you would desire. Don't worry about it too much. Let's go on home. And in that moment... My dad was modeling the very thing that we're talking about today. He was recognizing that I wanted to depend on somebody else as a 17-year-old boy in that situation. And to depend on my father would be a good way for me to love him and for him to love me. I knew I needed him. He knew I needed him in that moment. As far as a son loving and appreciating and respecting a good father, I also felt in that moment that he was helping me to be reminded and I was declaring back to him, even though the words weren't expressed, is I know who I am. I'm your son. I belong. I'm approved. I'm accepted. Unconditionally loved. It doesn't matter if I lose six games. You're still my dad. You love me. 
and you're for me. We had that connection, that type of love. And then lastly, he modeled loving your neighbor as yourself for me. With my mom. He confronted her in that moment. Gently, appropriately, but told her to back off. That her comments and her anger did not fit this situation. Now, I don't know what that did in their marriage the next day or week. But I know what it could have done. It could have been a great connection of him stepping out of his passivity and my mom backing off of some of her intensity misapplied to a moment. My dad modeled for me the very things we're talking about here this morning. Jesus, in this study this morning, teaches us both the what and the how for how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. So God, we do appeal to you that uh, sometimes in passages like this for people that are church going, they've heard it, they've read it, it's been taught, and it can become too common. But I pray this morning we were able to go inside this passage in a way that lifts it out in a fresh way, in a timely way, that we don't just in our heads say, oh yeah, love the Lord God with heart, soul, mind, strength, and uh, do love your neighbor self. But that we say, wait a minute. Wow, I, I need to think about, um, is that the kind of love that I'm experiencing with God, my Father? Is that the kind of love that I'm pushing forth in my life toward the neighbor, the betrayer, the bystander, and the best friend? And am I depending on God because he doesn't want to leave it all on me. He wants me to come to him and say, help me, God. Help me to be more like you in these situations for your glory and for my good. Would you do that work in the hearts and minds of friends here this morning? Would you nudge us to the next place you'd want us to go in our work life, in our married life, as parents, as friends? as followers of you. And I ask that through your son, Jesus. Amen. Happy Father's Day.